This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all of the albums we've covered so far. This 12th episode focuses on Immigrants, Emigrants and Me by Power of Dreams. Now, Episode 5 of this podcast focused on Interparadise, the Churchtown band whose Blue Light EP, Set 002, was the second release on Satanta Records' Keith Collins' London Irish record label. For this episode, we're going to tell the story of the young Walkinstown band whose first record, A Little Piece of God EP, bore the next catalogue number on the famed label, Set 003. Within weeks of releasing A Little Piece of God in October 1989, Power of Dreams were subjected to a major label bidding war. As you're about to hear in the episode, this involved not only phone calls to the Walker family home in Walkinstown, but it got so ridiculous that even when the band were accompanied by their parents, walking through Heathrow Airport on their way to signing a recording contract with Polydor Records, they were being hailed over the public address system to pick up an airport phone. A rival Aenor man was on the line pleading with the band not to take the Polydor deal. I mentioned that the band was accompanied by their parents on their way to London, because of course Power of Dreams were young, very young. Craig Walker, the singer-guitarist and songwriter in the band, had only just turned 18. His brother Keith on drums was only 16, and their friend Mick Lennox on bass guitar was 17. They were young, and the music press loved them. The enemy declared that the band have the power to uplift, the power to inspire, the power to provoke, and the power to dream. So here we go, to hear knows when great Irish albums revisited. Episode 12, Immigrants, Emigrants and Me, by Power of Dreams. It's my great pleasure to welcome Craig Walker. So listen, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time pleasure the podcast's really good thank you thank you you from cork then that's a cork accent isn't it yeah i would know Kiron. i would know mark healy i've only ever met ian once and that was actually ian came back to cork for the micro disney for the very last gig right so i met ian that night with mark and with a gang we had such a great time in cork it was like we had better time in cork than we did in dublin actually because it's a different vibe down there i think also because we were in with like Ian and, and our crew were from, we had Dennis Herlihy for years as our crew. God rest his soul. That was fairly shocking, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I thought he'd got better. I thought he'd pulled through, yeah. Yeah. I'm friends with his daughter, Emma. She's doing music, actually, Emma. She's making electronic music. I sent her some stuff about her dad and she was like really amazed that we had it, you know, like photos from on tour in Japan and yeah, no, Dennis was great. Did Dennis do those tours with you, yeah? Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. I knew he'd have done, obviously, all the Irish states, but I didn't realise he had travelled that far with you. He did, yeah. Wow. He did the first two tours of Japan. And Dennis being Dennis, as you know, Snazzy D, we had great crack because he arrived back into the pub in that they all drank in and Dennis arrived in, of course, off the pod tour wearing kimono <laughs> into the bar <laughs> no better man no better man he was super professional you know and that, that that was a like a big eye-opener for us we were working with somebody and Ian and and all the cork crew were yeah. really you know top notch cork is and was a huge part of our story you know as soon as Ian joined and in fact even before that we'd we'd kind of got a crowd there and dennis was working for us before Ian joined and then the label were kind of giving us pressure because we, Robbie, who died last year, our guitar player, 
up till that point, he didn't want to join the band full time. He had his own aspirations and he had his own band. Eventually, the label were like, you know, we're spending a fortune on on session fees that we don't need to if you can get somebody in. Dennis said, I can get in. You'd seen Cypress Mine because you'd played with them in the Bagot, hadn't you? Yeah, I was a massive fan. Massive fan. And particularly Avene. They were a great band, but Ian was just really like, you know, on another level. And when I went to see him, it was like he was the real deal. You know? He always looked the part too, Craig, didn't he? That's it. He brought us something special, didn't he, on stage? Completely, completely. And he's, you know, and a great player. I mean, he's the best thing about Auslander for me was working with Ian again. And the way that the album was done was, you know, Eric Alcock, who's now the bass player in the band and the producer of the record, he was getting the stuff sent. So I was doing, you know, recording the basic demos of the track to a click track in my own, my own studio home. Uh, so vocals, acoustic guitar to a click sent it to the producer, Eric, and he then did a mock up. He put some bass down and and he sent them a one to Ian and one to Keith. They wanted separate things in the mix. It was quite complicated to make it happen, you know. So it involved two separate mixes for them. And then I'd get a call from Eric saying, oh, my God, I've got the guitars back for whatever track. And he said, I mixed it on Friday, got the guitars back, sat them in. And he said, uh, the guitar parts are going around my head all weekend, you know. So he's like a singer, Ian. That's the thing. It's like having another singer in the band. You know, his lines were really, really melodic. And and yeah, it was really amazing to work with him again. Me and Ian continued together. We had a band with Morty after. I remember, yeah. So, you know, with Pharmacy. And so we a long, long association together. And he's brilliant. And, and I'm delighted to be working with him again. Ian's one of the best guitar players Ireland's ever produced, in my opinion. Right up there. Yeah, yeah. I know people go on about the name guitar players, but I think he has his own style, which is pretty damn rare. You know, he's got his own mark and uh, and his sound is always fantastic. Where are you from in Dublin, Craig? I'm from Walkinstown. The address on the back of the first 12 inch. My parents. Was that your house. parents? Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing about that, I was showing my wife that recently and I was saying, like, look, we put her our actual address. <laughs> you wouldn't do that today. Jesus. No. So obviously it was easy to find a walker in Walkinstown in the phone book. So I was getting woken up. This is before we signed. Um, so the, the the single came out, did really well, the EP. And I was getting woken up in, in the morning uh, and or late at night getting these phone calls from my mother was like, you know, I've got Jeff Travis on the phone here. He said he's from Rough Trade Records or got Alan McGee on the phone here, you know. So that was it. But would those names have meant something to you at 17, 18? Completely. Yeah. I was a Smiths fanatic. Yeah, you know? yeah. they, they were really my band. Yeah. You know, I was into the Beatles first and, and, and the usual. The Smiths were, were the first band that I got into as it was happening because yeah. I had a brother who was five years older than me and luckily had great taste in music. He was probably into the jam. That was probably his band, I suppose, was it? Uh, yeah, actually, the jam were, were my first band, really. I got into them just as they ended, you know? Yeah, yeah. I remember, like, I'd, I'd got it and I'd, I'd bought Sound Effects. It was the first album I'd ever bought with my own money in 1980. And then they split quite soon after. I remember, I couldn't believe it. It was like, what the hell, you know? Um, so the Smiths were yours then. But then the Smiths came in and they were my band. Like, and, yeah. and just, you know, right from the get-go, from hearing, I think it was the second, was it the second single I heard? I think it was probably This Charming Man, which was the second single, I think. Yeah. That was where I came in. I came in a little later. I used to buy the singles as they came out as well. And God, it used to be so exciting. I used to drive up north to get them on a Friday because it was a it was before the Monday. Brilliant. I'd convince my mother, I'd be like, I've got to get the single. And uh, we drive up, drive up to Newry, stop the first record store yeah. uh, and go home and have it for the weekend. And the B-sides were always brilliant. Was there music at home? Did someone play an instrument? Did your older brother play an instrument? Did your folks play? No, they didn't. My dad sang and my, you know, my grandfather played piano. He was a really good piano player on my mum's side and... They lived in in a house in Kevin Street in Dublin, big old Georgian house. And they used to have a, a music room and a piano there. And there'd be like, you know, family sessions and christenings, whatever. I'd sit and watch my, my grandpa play. He was the influence. I think 
he could play anything that like later on when he died, he died quite when I was quite young, but like my, my aunts always say, you know, he could sit and play and he could join in with anybody. And I never had a lesson in his life, but he could play by, by ear and he could tune the piano, which is quite amazing. And, and he was a really creative man. He would make stuff out of, um, he was a, a carpenter by trade and like, but made really amazing, like, grandfather clocks and stuff like that in his spare time so wow. so he definitely had an artistic flair but growing up like it was quite a mad mix of of music in my house my, my parents were kind of not into the beatles i think we had the red and blue album that was it they, they weren't into sergeant pepper or any of that they weren't massive fans like my mom was into all the girl groups like Dion Warwick and, and the Shirelles and you know all these amazing and a lot of the Phil Spector music would have been played in our house a lot by my mom and Dion Warwick I absolutely love and then my dad was into there's that weird thing in the 70s where you'd play disco albums you know you'd have this really odd collection of your parents music you'd have a bit of folk in there probably yeah Absolutely, or Foster and Allen album, and yeah, yeah, and and disco, you know, because I mean they they were into disco, so there was a lot of that. Ennio Morricone, strangely enough, there was like two or three of his soundtracks, which were mind blown right. for me, you know. That's and, a great uh, mix, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. Looking back, it's a really odd mix, and so that was it. And then that would have been the formal thing, but you know, it wasn't a house that we didn't listen to a lot of folk music. It wasn't a real like trad house. Like my dad had lived in the UK and my mum, they were they were really into English and American music. Yeah. And uh and I kind of I kind of fell into that as well. I followed them in that. But yeah, it's mad, isn't it? What what record collections were like in the past. So did you pick up <laughs> like, guitar then in your mid-teens or something? I was quite young. I started playing recorder in primary school. The teacher was like, You've you've really got a gift for music. And that that was young, that was like six or seven. And I found it really simple. I knew where the notes were. You know, weirdly enough, it was just an intuitive thing. So I knew that there was some ability there with it. But when I got to about, I think it was 11, I started getting classical guitar lessons. And I did that, took it quite seriously for about three years and did the grades and, and all of that. And, and, and was studying the theory. And the guy never would, would never, I'd, I'd come to him and I'd say, can we learn? I'd say, because I didn't understand that what I was doing was was actually much harder than just sitting and strumming chords. It's odd, I, you know, being young, I just never put it together that you know, if I make these shapes and, and strum it, it, it creates a chord. He would never allow it. I'd say, oh, can we learn this U2 song or whatever, you know, or whatever, David Bowie song. He's like, no, 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 no. We, we can learn it in a classical style. And I wasn't interested in that. Then I got an electric guitar for my f uh, Christmas at four, when I was 14. And that was it. And then I realized it was so possible to write songs. It was much easier to write songs on an electric guitar than a nylon classical. And, th and then that was it. I was off and running then. And I quickly realized that the stuff I'd been doing for classical was really useful, you know, like structural and chords and how to do that. Yeah, it was always about writing for me, right, right from the off. Were you really interested in English in school? Yeah. Were you encouraged by an English teacher with writing? Yeah, I was completely. I mean, my first... I think the first time I ever got praised outside of like sports or anything like that, and I was a quite sporty and quite good at football, was by a teacher. Um, she asked us to write a poem when we were, I don't know, eight or nine. She loved my poem <laughs> and made a big deal out of it. I still got the poem somewhere. Um, and, and that was it. That was the first time. And then I always loved words. I read, I was like a ferocious reader when I was younger and, yeah. English is that was my favorite subject by far. You put up on Bandcamp there, I think it's just last week, you put up this thing called Sketches Volume One, you know, and um I think it's subtitled eighty seven to ninety-two or something. And I recognise some of the names from kind of earlier demos and that. I was thinking eighty seven, so like you must have been like sixteen or, or something like that. I was sixteen and Keith was fourteen at that point. Wow. And um, we did a Joe Maxi yeah. uh, TV show with one of the tracks that's on the new EP from 1987. And we are kids. Like I was 16 and, and Key was 14 at the time and Mick would have been 15. That's mad, isn't it? So, yeah, it was it, it was mad. Yeah. I mean, Key was 16 when we recorded Immigrants, you know. I got the guitar at 14 and then it was like, let's, it was like a band immediately. Key got drum kit the same year, like a small kit. We had a shared bedroom, you know, so we, we lived in the same room. 
and the room from then on was just like a rehearsal room. I had a drum kit, I had our two beds, a drum kit, and my guitar amp, and and it was a band really from that point on. You know, I was more into writers than I was into to bands, if you know what I mean. Like I was really into Morrissey and Mar. And before that, you know, people like, you know, Bork Bacharach and, and David. And that's another guy that was heavily, him and Nat King Cole, there was a lot of that in our house. And and I was like, God, somebody writes these songs, you know. And like, since I released, realized that it wasn't some big company, that there was some guy writing these songs, I was completely fascinated. And, and that was the thing that really got me excited and what I wanted to be. I knew then that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted my name on the credits. I didn't care whether I was singing it at that point. It wasn't the consideration. You know? And you got into a studio with Stano, didn't you, for one of those demos? We did. Sure, like 1988. Would you have known who Stano was? I mean, how would you have come across Stano? He was friends with my brother. He was very good friends with my brother's mate. Okay. We knew nothing about him. Yeah, yeah. But it was great. I mean, we, we did it as well with uh, Paul Thomas. It was at, We did a demo at Paul Thomas's studio, which isn't, it's not there anymore, but it it was great. I mean, Stano, he was the first person we ever met who was a bohemian in any description, <laughs> in any way. And we thought he was super weird, but great, you know. And he was an artist and, you know, he talked in a language that we didn't, we ne- we'd never come across, you know. And, and I love how um, he's a self-confessed non-musician, but yet he's still great at bringing people together. Yeah, I mean, similar to somebody like David Bowie, you can say almost, you know, I mean, I know Bowie's, you know, great musician as well and, and a great writer, but I think a lot of the stuff that he did is constructed in that way, where it's more like it's sculpting almost, you know, and he's compiling the best bits. There's a great art to that, you know. Absolutely, uh, yeah. There's, there's different kinds of production, isn't there? I mean, I think if people sat in the studio with somebody like Kevin Shields, they'd probably go insane, you know, because <laughs> it's not what you'd expect it to be. And I know people that, have, that work with Kevin and, and they say that it's, you know, it's really not what you'd expect it to be. Yeah, so yeah. It really is like, uh, what's the word? Sound exploration about 90% of the time. Stano is great. We were really lucky. We worked with him. That came to the attention then of Keith Cullen, wasn't it? Of Keith Cullen, yeah. So we suddenly had this demo and like we were really kind of, I don't know whether you've seen the cassettes, yeah, but yeah. we were like very on it and labels Absolutely. printed. And Logos. and We really wanted yeah, yeah. it. It looked very professional for what you'd call a demo, you know. It was, it was a step up from the typical demo. Exactly. And Stano did a great job and Paul Thomas did a great job. And yeah, and then from that, we came to Keith Cullen's attention. And he came down to see us play an afternoon gig in the underground bar. And that would have been in probably the beginning of 89 or or late 88, I think it was. He was home for Christmas. And he didn't make any big thing. He just came down to the gig. He said, that was brilliant. I want to do an EP. I've got a a label in London. You're going to be the third release on on the label. And we were like, great. So... And that was it. And we didn't think much of it. And then he chased us up on it. And then suddenly we were in London. Were you still in school, Craig? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was still, I had to take some time off. I mean, whatever about you, were the parents okay about Keith heading off on the adventure with you? You know, I've been thinking about that recently. It gets even better. I mean, I can't believe that our parents let us get into a van when in 1987 to drive up to the north of Ireland regularly over the border. Like... I was, so that's 87, I'd have been, Keith would have been 14, 15 going up the north. I would have been two years older in a Dublin Reg van. It was pretty heavy then. <laughs> and it's not too many years after the, no. the Miami show band, for God's sake. Exactly. It was, yeah, it could have went horribly wrong. And there was a few occasions that it was kind of pretty, pretty weird. But I, I, I said it, we were on a Zoom call recently and I said to Mick and Keith, I said, how did they let us do that? I would never let my kid do that now. But, you know, maybe my parents were cooler than I thought they yeah, were. Yeah, But But they didn't. I mean, they didn't interfere. They were, I mean, I have to give them the credit. Like, they, my mom had, oh, every Saturday, four or five people in her kitchen with guitar amps and full band. And then we eventually moved it out to the, to the garden shed, you know, one <laughs> little brown garden yeah, yeah. shed. And we would have a drum kit, a keyboard player, a bass player, two guitarists and a vocalist in those little sheds. Just going for it. And just going for it. Yeah, Brilliant. loved it. And uh, and the neighbours never complained either. I think it's testament to, you know, we must have been good. Yeah, fair play. So they must have heard something. The podcast there a few episodes ago, Dave Long was talking about when Keith announced that 
Adrian Borland from The Sound was going to produce the first Into Paradise EP. Likewise, when Keith announced to you that he'd managed to get John O'Neill from The Undertones to produce your first EP. Amazing. How did you react? Amazed, completely. Absolutely amazed. Couldn't believe it. And then couldn't believe how nice he was, you know. I didn't know what a producer did at that point. I had no idea. I'd worked with Stano and like Stano, as you know, is very hands off. He's not what I thought a producer was. And Sean O'Neill was just, he was brilliant. He was really like, he was a hero to us. He'd written some of the best songs ever. And he was just amazing. He was so encouraging. And again, we were very lucky. I think those two people gave us confidence, massive, massive events of confidence. Because I was an awkward, really shy, you know, 17 year old at that point when we did the EP. Immediately, I he said, so what do you want to do? And I'd, I'd showed him something and he said, that's great. And I was waiting for him to say, that's boss. You need to, boss. you need to do that. He never did. It was just like, I love it. That must have done your confidence really, really good, Craig. Oh, huge amount. Huge amount. We came, we finished that EP and like the guy, like, you know, we were such big Smiths fans and we, it was in Angel Studios where the first, the unreleased version of the first Smiths album had been recorded. And Nick Angel, who was the engineer on it, had worked on the Four Smiths album. Yeah, the Troy Tate stuff, wasn't it? The Troy Tate stuff, yeah. Yeah. Like that was like the Holy Grail yeah, stuff yeah. for us, that we were actually in the presence of somebody who had worked on a Smiths record. Yeah, yeah. And and we were in the presence of a living legend with John O'Neill. It was really great. I mean, I I think if we'd got the wrong producer, it wouldn't have been nearly as good. He just let us, he really let us express ourselves and uh, and and caught the band. Because by that point we'd played as I was saying, we were going up the north probably every second month from 88 to, to 89, that particularly those at those points. So we were doing as many gigs that we were getting gigs all the time and getting and, and we were doing as many as you could while we were in school. But we'd played a lot of gigs and it really it really showed when we went in to do the first EP. We were, it was quite a very a tight. Tight, tight unit. And we'd been playing together for a couple of years. Key was savage then as a drummer. Oh my God. Somebody sent me a cassette from a gig we did in 1987 in Earl Grattan. And they were pretty loose with underage people getting in and underage bands, which we were. They sent me this gig and oh my God, it's like Keith Moon on the drums. Honestly, it's extraordinary. <laughs> the pace. We're rehearsing at the moment for the upcoming tour. So I've had to go and sit down and listen to some of the old stuff that I haven't listened to in a long time. The, the one thing that got me was the speed of it. I've become like middle-aged and I, <laughs> I think everything's strum along at this point. It's way faster than I remembered. It's that vitality you use, isn't it? And, yeah. and even the style of playing on the older stuff, it's like, it's all completely rigid, just like punk rock, yeah. just down. There's no, there's no flariness in it yeah. at all. Um, that came later from watching loads of other good bands on stage and you get influenced and, you know, but I think that's why people love the first records, isn't it? It's because it's untainted and it's not, you know, you're not, your head's not full of... It's just the energy of youth, isn't it? Just the energy of youth, yeah. completely. And was the plan always to jump to a major? Would Keith have preferred you to do another EP or an album with him? I'm sure he would. He did. And I think he was quite angry at the time, you know, and understandably so. The Franks did it right probably in, yeah. in retrospect, you know, where they didn't jump ship and they were getting offers. We were getting ridiculously good offers. Like there was labels flying in all the time. I was getting flown over and my head was definitely torn. There's no doubt about it. Did you have good advice? I mean, you were just a young fella. My parents wouldn't have really known anything to do with the music industry. So there was a couple of people around. We had a manager. Like they were young enough as well, weren't they? Yeah, they were young guys. Connor Brooks was, he'd started Capital Radio, the pirate station that ran out of McGonagall's, upstairs in McGonagall's. We met him and Killian Ford, who were boat running the station. And they had a club night in McGonagall's every Thursday. And we were regulars at that. And we did an interview with them after we did the demo with Stano. I think on air, they said, oh, we'll manage you. And that was kind of it, you know. Jesus, they were in the right place at the right time, weren't they? Yeah. More so than ye, you know. Exactly. They got luckier, didn't they? Yeah. (laughs) And they certainly did. But it was kind of like, they were were really good guys and they were friends. And and I think the deal, like, it's so ridiculous that when we arrived in, it was in December, when we landed in, um, in, in Heathrow with our family, our parents had to come over and sign for Keaton Mick's parents had to sign for them because they were both. I was just over 18, but the lads were under. 
as we landed, we get a message in, in Heathrow Airport, you know, over the intercom. Uh, Power of Dreams, would somebody from the Power of Dreams group please make their way? Pick up the red phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were on our way to sign to Polydor, and it's like, you know, we're getting intercom messages in in Heathrow Airport. Don't do it. It's Sony. <laughs> it was Sony. It was Sony. <laughs> it was. It was Gordon Charlton, who, who I'm still friends with today. Uh, he was trying to sign us. Him and Muff Winwood wanted to sign the band, his boss. They were really on it. And, th- and they offered us double the money that we were getting offered. It was quite a lot of money. Huge money to us at the time. It's a crazy business, isn't we'll it? We'll double that offer. Uh, don't sign it. You know, we went with Polydor. It was, you know, the Velvet Underground's label, which was, a you know, we were big fans of. The Who, The Jam, as we spoke. Style Council, uh, Van Morrison. Were The Cure on some kind? I think The Cure were on a subsidiary. Cure, yeah. Fiction yeah. is part of it. Yeah. Ah, sure and, uh, and then, and then yeah, it was a great label. It, it felt good, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. And they were very nice to us. And they were, you know, and looking back, I mean, they, they never interfered with the album. I can't believe that they let me get away with it. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. grateful they did. There was no, the influence came a bit later in the second album, I probably was listening to to the, the A and Oral guys, and they would have been more pressure because you know we owe them money by that point. But but for the first album, it, they just said get on with it. Met all these producers, and but but Ray Shulman was was easily the nicest that I'd met, and he'd been in the band Gentle Giant with yeah, his yeah. brothers. Their first two or three albums were Tony Visconti productions, so like you're right. They knew a thing or two about being in a studio. They certainly did. He was a very nice man and he was really into the music. He had done the Sugar Cubes. He did. That's the one I remember. He did Birthday and, and Deus. Exactly. That first track, what's that called? Life's Too Good. A great album. He had also just done the McCulloch album. Ah, uh, Candleland. Uh, yes, it was Candleland. We're Proud to Fall. and The me. black and white cover. Yeah, it's a good album. I was a really big fan of that. And he'd also done the Sundays album. So yeah, he'd done those three out, the Sugar Cubes, the Sundays and McCulloch. And I was completely like, I want this guy. I like the sound of the records. And they agreed to it. And I don't think they ever interfered. I don't think they came down and they were like, but they let us get on with it. And Ray, his whole thing, he, we did it in Master Rock Studios in, in Kilbourne, which is not there anymore, um, right next to the Kilbourne Ballroom. He picked that place purposely because it's got a had a massive live room, like huge. I think it's as big as um not as big as Abbey Road, but like a really massive live room where you could easily fit a band. So he he set it up like a live thing, you know, drums, bass, and we were looking at each other with with visors to to stop the sound. So the the bass and drums are are pretty much completely live on the record. We took like I don't know ten days to record the the bass and drums. And then the lads went back to Dublin and I stayed on and I did all my guitars and the vocals. And that was probably for about a month, uh, maybe six weeks. And I was put up in the Hilton Hotel Can you know, Stop. In, in Kensington. <laughs> it was, There's a reason you owed them money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still owe them money. I've probably, I will until the day I die. Oh, but uh, it was just like, I thought, you know, it couldn't get any better than that. I felt a bit like a sellout though. There was part of me because, you know, Sellout was a thing then. There was there was that part of me thinking, okay, what a sellout. You're sitting here. The wedding present had moved to RCA. And yeah, exactly. There was a few bands there in the late 80s that had made that jump, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was becoming less terrible to do it. Sonic Youth had done the deal with Geffen in the States. You know, that opened it up for so many bands, didn't it? Exactly. Totally did. Totally did. And I guess I was young as well, so they wanted to keep an eye on me. So, you know, I had I didn't I didn't really see London at all on that. It was just like literally I think they even had chaperones. There was always somebody dropping me back to the hotel, making sure that I got in and which is very nice. But it was a great time. You know, it was it was a real buzz. I mean, those six weeks where I was working with a great producer who I was learning off every day and and he made it so it, it was so much fun to do. And did he listen to you, Craig? He did. Amazing. He really did. And you know what? He never changed any of the arrangements. I mean, maybe, you know, like he could have changed it and maybe maybe it would have been better in some ways. But I think he left it alone. He, he, he saw the live. He came to Ireland to see us play and he saw us play in London before he agreed to do the album. I remember. And all of the producers said the same thing. Every single one that came backstage would go, 
we just got to record the band live. We just got to capture it. What you've got on stage is great and it's electric and there's a great intuition going on amongst you. And we had that vitality as well, as we spoke about earlier. What age would he have been? If he'd been in, in Gentle Giant in the early 70s, he must have been, I suppose, early 40s, would he? Early 40s. So to you, he must have been ancient. He was ancient. Yeah, I'd never heard of Gentle Giants. Of course not, because that was before the whole reissue culture. Absolutely. It's funny, when, as you get older, you think, God, like the youth are so selfish and wrapped up in themselves. But, you know, I never even went and bought a Gentle Giant album, having... <laughs> Having <laughs> even if you'd wanted to, you probably couldn't have. I probably couldn't have got it. You're right. Yeah, it wouldn't have been around. Different time. I did listen to later, obviously, and and I've got into it, and I like a lot of the stuff. But he did a great job on that. He didn't treat you like a kid, so I suppose that's what I'm asking. That's great. That's no. That's really decent of him. Yeah, yeah. He was really, really, really sound, and uh, never felt like I was, you know, yeah. having to push to get anything. I didn't even know what I would have been pushing anyway. But he liked my ideas and uh, was really like, keep doing what you're doing. This is great. I learned a lot about vocal recording in that album, particularly because I'd never spent that amount of time in the studio and picked up a lot of tricks about, you know, guitar sounds and, and harmonies and the constructions of songs. So it, it was great. And he was he was a total gentleman. The actual album title, it seemed to me to be kind of wise beyond your years at the time. It was like, my God, this is so profound. Yeah, I'm quite amazed as well. It's kind of, um, I don't know, it was maybe 10 years after we released it like in the early 2000s that when I started to, for the first time to look back at the band, the anniversary, 2010, I'd kind of ignored it for so long, yeah. you know, in the past. And like I'd, I'd gone on and done other stuff and... Hadn't paid much attention to it. There wasn't the whole revival thing that you get now, even then, as much. I went back and started listening then, and it was at that point, I think 20 years is the point where it's far enough away from when you did it to be able to appreciate it. And to be honest, the older I get, yeah. the more I can appreciate what we did, you know, at that age. The album title, I think reading, writing, and arithmetic yeah. was obviously yeah. an influence on it. You know, I, I like that idea of that, that kind of telling a lot of things with three words, you can say a lot. And um, and it kind of captured, you know, as you know, as you well know, like at that point, 1990. The boat, it was still the boat. Yeah, yeah. It was still, a, you know, Ireland was a completely different place. I mean, people don't. Absolutely. It's great that the younger generation don't remember that in a way. But there's also a charm to that that I kind of miss, you know. There's parts of it that, that, that you can miss, but... But then there's the, the other parts of like, you know, yeah. everybody going away. It felt like everyone I knew was leaving. I remember like when we were doing the leaving cert in 1989, you know, the teacher, he gave us like a end of year speech and he was like, and, and so, you know, 70% of you are going to leave and, you know, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> it's like, it was just an inevitable thing, wasn't it? I yeah. didn't even question it. And it was either stay and be one of the lucky few that manages to get something going or, you know, but there just wasn't the opportunity, was there? There really wasn't. It's incredible, actually, how things have changed, you know, isn't it? Yeah. In a generation. The photograph, Craig, it's such a stunning photograph, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It was used in a campaign for the Irish Society for Prevention, ISPCA, and the ISPCA had an office in our manager's office on Suffolk Street. They had their headquarters in the in the office above us. I think the photographer's quite famous, though, isn't it? Yeah, I got onto the gallery of photography in Temple Bar. William Fagan, the chairperson of the gallery of photography, he got back to me. Yeah. Now this isn't the album cover, but it's from the same shoot. Wow. It was taken in nineteen seventy five. Yeah in Belvedere Place by Bill Doyle. So Bill Doyle, you know, is the photographer. Now he, yeah. one of the most acclaimed Irish photographers of all time, Craig, as you know, he died in 2010. Wow. He was 85. So he was born in 1925. And he took this in 75. So he'd have been 50 when he took this. My age now. Exactly. Now, Belvedere Place. So, I mean, I don't know, would this still have been tenements oh, yeah. in Belvedere Place in 75 but you know that's what it looks like doesn't it? It does. So William Fagan told me to contact Hetty Walsh. Hetty Walsh runs a dark room in Kinsale. She printed Bill Doyle's wow. work. 
So again, I sent her this and I sent her the album cover. So she emailed me. She says, really powerful. She said, the place Bill was renting when he was working looked just like this. It was very run down. This child was the child of one of the cleaning ladies. <laughs> so there you go, Craig. Wow, I love it. I love it. Now, he also photographed the cleaning lady. So let me just stop my share and I'll go again. This is from Hetty now. So there's the cleaning lady. Superb. Ah, that's the that's the mother. That's the, do- the daughter. That's the mother. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Hetty said he was a master photographer. He was an expert on lighting. He knew how to use it. He was a huge fan of Henri Cartier-Bresson, the famous French photographer. And he had met him in, in the 1970s as well. Awesome. And I didn't know this of Bill Doyle. I'm not pretending to know an awful lot about Bill Doyle. He would go down to the Cork Jazz Festival every year and he was a huge jazz fan and he took photos of all the jazzers in Cork. Oh, wow. And then William Fagan said that the picture with the child, not the album cover, but the other one I showed you, he said there was a book published of Bill Doyle's photographs and it's called Images of Dublin, A Time Remembered. And page three of the book, he said, is that photograph. I have to just, I'll have to write that down. I'll send you on what both of them said. Excellent. So it's Images of Dublin, A Time Remembered. He said it was published by Lilliput Press, the Irish publishers. Yeah, so it's lovely to kind of... Ah, that's amazing. So it's 1975 it was taken. Wow, I I didn't know that. That's amazing, isn't it? I'll have to get a copy of that book if I can when I'm home. Definitely on the tour. I remember seeing the image on this. It was like a short-lived campaign that they ran. And I think I read somewhere that it didn't last very long. It was like a, a very short campaign for very brief. I must have caught it in the office and, and, and seen it. And uh, and I was like, that's it. That's the album cover. It just fit perfectly with the album title as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know the way certain records, the design of the cover, the photograph with the title. Oh, Totally. This record is, yeah. it, it's one of those, isn't it? It's just absolutely, absolutely, it's timeless. Do people care about it anymore? I don't know. Do you think it's important? I mean, I think it's it's one of the great lost parts. Yeah, I mean, we're just old farts, though, really saying that, Craig, That's aren't we? It. I mean, no one cares who produced the record <laughs> No one anymore. cares when it's, when it's this size, yeah, do they? when it's a thumbnail it's, on um, your phone. And that, that I miss, like... I know. I'd have been like you. What's the studio? Who produced it? Who, you know, those, as we were saying at the start, those Smiths 12 inches when you could like, it was like an education. Who the hell is, who the hell is this person? Who's, who's Sheila Delaney? Oh, I need to find out who she is. That kind of stuff, you know. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. Love that. The things you remember, Craig, I was able to like date specifically when I bought the album. Brilliant. So I bought it the day it came out in Cork. And believe it or not, the QE2 had come into Cove because Cunard, they were celebrating 150 years and the QE2 came into Cork Harbour. The day I bought the tape, my parents, we drove from Cork City out to Cove. My parents went across on a boat just to see the QE2 and I stayed in the car listening to the tape. Brilliant, brilliant. It was the 23rd of July, 1990. That's That's the date. It It was released in Ireland, at least, anyway. Pretty amazing reviews from the off. Again, I was talking to Dave Long about Dave Kavanagh. He was a great supporter of... um, of Satanta, wasn't yeah. he? And he loved the record. He, yeah, he did. He died, unfortunately, didn't he, a few years ago? Oh, Dave? very, very tragic. He very was young. He end. must have been very, he must have been, what, early 50s? I think so. God great, love him. Great writer. Really great writer. Brilliant writer. Yeah. I was trying to remember why, like, why did you play Nancy Spain's when you could have done a bigger gig? And then it dawned on me. You shot the video for American Dream that's right. in Nancy Spain's in Cork. So that's why it was a smaller gig. That's it. And it, w- it would have been around Christmas time. I'm not sure. Maybe it was. Yeah, it was. I think it was December even because we I think we just come off the mission tour. And I mean, it was all a whirlwind for Ian. So he, he came to rehearsals. So we finished the album and Robbie wasn't it wasn't going to work out with Robbie. With, with a lot of touring ahead of us, um, Ian came over, we did a rehearsal and it, and it worked out perfectly. And straight away we, we were on the road. I think Ian joined just as the album was about, 
come out. Yeah, there was a gig in Henry's around the album release, maybe August. Yeah. And Ian was definitely on stage for that. He was. Yeah, I remember that. that. I think that might have been one of the... No, I think we did a couple of... We did a UK tour first, and the label loved them. I think we did a gig in London. All the label came down and they were like, fucking great guitars, great, great move. Yeah. We're, we're delighted he's on board. And then we started touring all the way through to the album. I think we were on the road for, for most of the year, all the way up till December. And then we went to Cork and played Nancy Spencer for the video. That was the yeah. American dream. And would you believe someone put it up on YouTube there? I was literally able to like freeze frame myself in it. Oh, brilliant. And spot myself in the audience. <laughs> and it was like, Jesus. I'll, I'll find you. I'll have to, I'll... <laughs> up the front. And a buddy of mine used to smoke a pipe. In 1990, we were just 18, like, and he used to smoke a pipe. You can see him up the front in Nancy Spades in the American Dream video, smoking a pipe. pipe. I've got to check that out. Just having flashbacks, you know what I mean? Like, oh my God. You mentioned that Mission tour. People forget the Mission were bloody huge. huge. I have that record. That was the Carved in Sand album. Yeah, uh, yeah. Massive Deliverance record. was the big thing. I loved that That's at it. the time. They were playing like, you know, five, six thousand people a night everywhere we went. All over, all That's over amazing. Europe, you know, all over Italy, all over Portugal. We, we went everywhere. Czech Republic. Uh, came to Berlin for the first time in, on that Mission tour, which was in 1990. So the wall had just come down, you know, and that was an amazing experience experience the mission they were great i mean we couldn't have picked a better band they were they were super nice guys they were from the north of england yeah yeah. they had a good a big affection for irish people and, and and we really hit it off you know and the crew loved us and we, we did a brilliant tour we picked up a great audience as well did you go a bit mental uh, yeah everybody did yeah yeah it was kind of a bit i suppose it's what you're supposed to do on your first big yeah. tour isn't it i mean because they it's were a rite of passage exactly and i mean they they were big drinkers you know the mission lads were like they were 10 years older than us they were like kind of road hogs by this point and um yeah and it's quite funny. It was the first time that we noticed the dynamics of a band, you know, from the inside. Like the drummer was the drummer and he was super nice. And But every night at a certain time, it would all change the mood backstage because the resentments amongst these guys who'd been in a band for 10 years or 15 years at that point would come out. It was a real education, but they were super, super professional. I mean, they were really great band to watch every night and see how they did it. And um, and from that tour, we picked up a big following all over. You know, I think when we did our own tour after that, we'd like 50 or 60 of their fans following us around the UK. And, oh, and that's a great, it's great arriving to a town knowing that you've got this army with you, you know. That was a real rite of passage. Another band that we toured a lot with was The Wedding. We did quite a lot of touring with The Wedding Present, uh, more so with The House of Love. We toured a lot with them. Jesus, all favourite bands of mine. Me too. The Wire yeah. we toured with. Oh, you man. Know. What was it like coming back and doing your own gig in the SFX in Dublin when you had done so many support slots there? That must have been kind of mind-blowing. Oh, it was. I mean, we, you know, I'd seen everybody there. It was like my, my favourite. That and the stadium were the like my, my haunts as a, as a teenager, you know. And it was really like you'd made it once you'd, once you'd headlined at the SFX. And that was really all we wanted to ever achieve, you know, as, as, as kids. It was like, imagine if we could get to headline a show here. And it was quite rare at that point for homegrown acts to do it. I mean, there was bands like Something Happens would do it and A House did it. And, and they were massive heroes of ours and big influence on us as a band. As were Cypress Mine, our first heroes were, were local, you know. The, the scene was really good, as you know, like 87 to 90 was a really good time in Irish music where you had bands like Guernica, who else was around, Slow as Clock. Um, it's endless. A lot of the bands you've had on here, you know, of really amazing bands. Blue in Heaven a little bit yeah. earlier. Those First those album was great, wasn't it? Great. I, love, I love the first record. Obviously, Michael Disney, um, but there was a real healthy scene. And then even like, an un, you know, bands like The Garden hasn't changed much. And what was the other band that was, uh, Wild, was it Wilder? The Oscar Wilds and the Wild Oscars. Wild Oscars. Wasn't it? They were yeah. great. So it was a great scene. I think it was the following year, Craig, ye opened for, for the Pixies in The Point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, yeah. 
I think it was on Facebook, someone put up the ticket stub of the National Stadium Pixies gig from the year before. And you'd said, oh, I was at that. Jesus, it must have been bloody mental then to have been a, it was. like a punter at the National Stadium. 18 months later, yeah. the opening band yeah. in the point. I know. Now, I know the Pixies yeah. gig wasn't amazing in the point. I remember that night. Yeah. I remember there was a band from Belfast called Chimera, kind of a shoegazy band who opened up. I remember them. But I can remember being there with, you know, with a couple of mates and being really proud that ye had made this, like this jump up. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Should step up. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was really amazing. I remember the gig, totally. The fact that we played the SFX blew our minds, you know, because we'd been to see Echo and the Bunnymen, I think, a year before we headlined. And I'd, I'd seen uh, Nick Cave there. I remember going to see, I think Nick Cave played like two weeks before we, we played. And, you know, just thinking, thought, like, we're going to be playing here, you know, we're going to headline here. Did you get cocky, Craig? I think, yeah, you, you, I think, well, I think it's a mixture of, of fear of it all being taken away from you after a while. It changes really quickly with a major label. You know, you, you, you sign to them. Everything's on the ascent. Obviously, they've they've got you and your your hot property. You know, if, if a major signed you back then, and and everybody's like really like so enthusiastic and pushing it, and, and everything's positive and it's like that. And then they start talking about midweek chart positions for the first time, and you're like, what? What's that? And, and it's like, there you go, Music Week. This that's the trade yeah. magazine. Yeah. And 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 at that point, that's when you begin. It begins to click that. Yeah, all of this costs money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the Hilton for those weeks. Yeah, um, and it's funny, when we got dropped after the second album, we got given an itemised bill of everything. And it was, you know, it went on for days. But like Room service. <laughs> everything was on there. Every single cup of coffee we'd ever had with our, with our A&R guy was on it. Every taxi we'd ever taken. And so you'd never pay that. You'd need... Ed Sheeran does a cover of 100 Ways. Then you'd pay it off. Then you'd pay it off pretty quick. But other than that, no. And that's, the, you know, I, I, there's that whole thing going on at the moment, isn't there, with the guy from Gomez and Crispin Hunt from the Long Pigs. And, and good on those guys, you know, they're really having a go. Your man's after being invited on to the committee of, of yeah. is it the Ivor Novello or something or exactly. something like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's great to see, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're both super smart guys. And what they're saying is completely true that, you know, there is no, there was no such thing as, a, as, as an advance from a record company. They were based back then. They were, it was a loan. Not even a loan. It was, they were buying it off you and you were never going to get it back. Basically, because the way that it's set up that you'll never recoup, honestly, you know, the percentages are so low that you're never going to recoup. And as you said, it would take a miracle. Um, and there's so many bands, you know, who, who don't own the rights to their music many, many years later. And it's not like the labels are doing anything with the majority of that music, because the trick is that the, the day that you get dropped, they'll, they'll delete your, your entire existence. Happened to the Whipping Boy, it happened to us. You know, the day you get dropped, that's it. It's suddenly gone. It's no longer available. Those two records that we did with Polydor, they've been out of issue for forever, you know, and or there's no chance of, 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 of an album becoming, a, you know, having a second or third wind if it's out of circulation, you know. That side of the business is really shitty. And I, I mean, I probably never will own those records. You mentioned there earlier that you're gearing up for a tour next week now obviously when this airs that tour will have been over Craig how do you prepare yourself you're 50 most of the audience will be 50 mm. reliving their late 80s early yeah. 90s you know their college years I suppose Absolutely. you'd say maybe or and they want to hear those songs these are songs you wrote when you were 16 and 17 years of age I mean how do you get your head around that it's, it's really weird my, my son is closer to my age then than I am now you know that He's, he's like 11. It's weird. I, I don't get to play them that much. So I guess it, it is, it does become, it's interesting. Like it's, I feel so far removed from that person or that, that 16 year old. It is almost like another person, which makes it quite interesting. You know, like we were, because yeah. me, me and the bass player were like last week, we were jamming out the songs and, you know, a lot of them he'd never heard before. Obviously the new stuff, the old songs. And it was interesting. We we sat down and we were doing it like we like we were doing any like how we'd normally work with somebody that we're writing with or 
you know, and it was kind of studying. Yeah, it was really, it was really quite interesting, you know. Is it almost like an out of body type experience, Craig? Completely, yeah. And thinking, why did I go there? There was a couple of songs that, like, we were both quite confused why I would have done that, and I still don't know why. But yeah, that's how far removed it is that I can actually sit and look at the sit and critique the work, you know, as a. You get it, Craig. I mean, you've gone to gigs and and you want to see the band play the hit from when you Absolutely. bought the record. It's part of it, yeah, isn't it? Completely, completely. And I think any band that kind of tries to deny that, you know, and it's one of the good things that Noel Gallagher said, you know, he said, like, you know, everybody goes to see that they, they, they want to hear what they want to hear. You know, I agree with that as well. Give value for money and entertain people. And uh, my days of going out and being an awkward sod on stage and putting out, being an awkward sod in the set list, you know, it's not. It's like life's too short, isn't it? So, And the songs mean more to other people, you know, that's that's the thing. You know, it's like I've had great stories over the years from people I've met all over the world, of, you know, and the oddest of places, they'll tell you that a song has done something for them or or an album and 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 that's why we do what we do that we inhabited somebody's life for a period i remember once being told by a woman in france when i was in archive and we just released this album you all look sound to me and the album was like a one hour three minutes long and she told me that her bike ride to her job in a mental institute was a one hour and three minutes and she listened to it twice a day and, uh, and she said, thank you for being with me. It was like, you know, it was the most depressing period of my life walking in this place. It got her but through. But it got me through. Yeah. But that's what music's always done for me and for you, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like it kind of enriches our lives and soundtracks our lives. And, and we inhabit those songs, you know, you know, as a listener. Like even today we walk by me. It's a bank holiday here. It was a beautiful sunny day. We live close to a cemetery and... You know, I said to them, do you want, shall we go in for a walk in the cemetery? And they're like, no, no, no. So I start singing, you know, it's dread a sunny day <laughs> and I'll meet you by the cemetery gate. Takes you back. And uh, yeah, and I know all those songs. They're like ingrained into my DNA. They're the songs that will always mean the world to us. Congratulations on Auslander last year. Thank you. Do It was just, my God, one of the tunes of the year as far as I was concerned. What a, oh, what a beautiful song. As much as you're putting together the set list and working on those old songs for next week, it must be great as well to get feedback and nice reviews for what you're doing right now. Absolutely. And it makes the gigs far more exciting for us. You know, if you look at the band, I mean, we were very productive. You know, we released four albums between 90 and 94. So it was an album a year band and we we could have released two, you know, and we, we never really sat on and sat on our laurels. It was always about the new. So for a band like that, it's important that we got new material. It makes the whole thing exciting for us. Um, the new songs are sounding great live and it gives us the incentive to do it a lot more. And it doesn't feel like it's something completely old. If you think back to those years around the debut album, what was your own personal highlight? Is there a moment? Is there a gig? Is there, was it those few weeks on your own with Ray Shulman? Was there something? The few weeks with Ray Shulman was was amazing. It was it was really like a coming of age thing for me where I was suddenly out of Ireland for the first time for any length of time. And I was in in the city that was so synonymous with music and the music I loved and had, had grown up. Uh, so that that was a magic moment. But I think the, the best moment out of all of it was when I got the call from Ray Shulman to go around to his house in Earl's Court. And, uh, and he played the finished album to me. Him and his wife were there and I, I thought they were both really nice, you know, kind of old, old people. And he played the album on his nice speakers. And it was an amazing, it was like, you know, it, it was like, oh my God, it sounds really great, you know? And he said, congratulations, you've made, a, you've made a fantastic record. And he says, no matter what happens from this point on, you'll have always made a great record. And I remember thinking, yeah, great. And uh, they can't take that away from No, you. no. So that, that was really, that, that, was, that was the best moment. Um, and then all of it, it was great, you know, like just to have made an album. Like we, we couldn't believe that. The fact that we'd done an album. I know you've made better records, but there's something about the debut album oh, when it's... you know, as we said earlier, like the energy of youth. You know, like have you favorite track off at Craig, and will you introduce it for I me? Will, of course, 
I really like Bring You Down off that record. I don't know why. It's probably one that never got much that great amount of attention, but there's something about it. For me, it really captures the record. And I remember writing it. And the theme of the record is is in that, you know, it's like a, the lyrics, it's probably the most close to the whole theme of the record. You know, it kind of nails that. And yeah, just I, I'm a fan of that that, that song. And it's, it's lasted the test of time. But, but obviously, I think 100 Ways is still a great, great pop single and, and stays a great song and jokes on me talk and actually this those songs have really lasted they're three chord wonders aren't they you know as well that's, that's kind of buddy holly you know that kind of songwriting where it's like really simple concise and and the record's got no fat on it which i which i think is which is what i really we weren't self-indulgent yet you know we didn't we didn't want guitar solos and absolute no, no, in the studio with us at that point. It was, you know, you get you, you get in, you do, you don't bore people and, you know, you play it at 200 miles an hour. I do remember Ray Shulman had to keep telling us to slow it down. I, I do remember that. He's like, lads, it sounds amazing, but it's too fast. And, and the recorded versions are fast. I mean, I think most of it's at about 130 BPMs, which is ridiculously fast. But... Uh, it needed to be like that. That's a slowed down version of what we were doing live at that point. You know, we were just kind of like 100 miles an hour, like a machine. And uh, in that first flush of youth. The first flush of youth. Yeah. Craig, it's been lovely revisiting it with you. Uh, me too, Paul. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you for that research you've done on the, on the cover. I love it. Craig, mind yourself. Thank you. Take care, Paul. You too, mate. Thanks again to Craig Walker. So go to at learn and sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast and you'll find links to the episode notes with lots of further information about some of the things I discussed with Craig. You'll find further details on the cover photograph of Immigrants, Immigrants and Me and the work of master photographer Bill Doyle. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe, like or share. 
To hear knows when great Irish albums revisited, we'll be back in a few weeks with episode 13. Here's a short promo. 20 years since that album. It feels like 120 years. That far removed from it. I really am. I feel like somebody else. Sometimes I've seen videos of myself and (laughs) it just, it really is a bit cringy, you know, looking back. God, look at her. To hear knows when. Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 13, Starus, by Nina Hines. Hey, when we first met, I thought the time had come for me to die. But now I see that you had come to bring in here. So that was a short promo for episode 13. That's out in a few weeks' time. The theme music is Irish Rhapsody Redux and it's by Mark Healy. Mark Healy was mentioned at the very top of this episode. Mark was in Cypress Mine with Ian Olney. This is Mark's reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony. <laughs>